If you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 6 through 8 this morning, which is a passage that is laser focused on highlighting and presenting the absolute centrality of Jesus Christ in the life of us who believe. See, if you are a follower of Jesus, your entire existence as an elect exile, as someone who has been chosen by God and is therefore experiencing rejection by the world, your entire existence is both grounded and focused on, longing and aiming for Jesus Christ above all. In fact, our entire Christian life can be summarized by Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking unto Jesus And even as we saw last week, coming to Him. Jesus is our life, as Colossians 3.2 so aptly puts it. He is the source and He is the center, the gravity point of our existence. Now even though that truth will burst to the forefront of this morning's passage that we're going to be looking at today, the centrality of Jesus Christ has actually been the undercurrent of everything that we've been studying so far in the book of 1 Peter Ever since the beginning, back in chapter 1, verse 2, we saw there that Jesus is at the center of our divine election by God because it is Jesus who shed His blood to bring about our obedience to Him. In verse 3 of chapter 1, we see that Jesus is at the center of our living hope because it is Jesus who is the one that has risen from the dead. In chapter 1, verse 7, we see that Jesus is at the center of our future praise and honor and glory because it is Jesus' praise and honor and glory that we will share in someday. And this goes on and on throughout the entire letter of 1 Peter. In verse 8, Jesus is at the center of our supernatural love, faith, and hope. Verse 11, Jesus is at the center of our salvation's prophecies. Verse 13, Jesus is at the center of our future expectations. Verse 19, Jesus is at the center of our personal and present motivations. In verse 20, Jesus is at the center of God's redemptive plan. Verse 21, Jesus is at the center of our present faith and our future hope. Verse 25, Jesus is at the center of this gospel, the good news that we have believed. And then finally, in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, we saw that Jesus is at the center of our spiritual disciplines. Every time we open up the Bible, every time we get down on our knees in prayer, every time we join the fellowship and gather around us godly brothers and sisters in Christ, we do this because ultimately we have a great and eager longing for Jesus. We long to draw closer and closer to Him. Because we've tasted and we've seen that He is good and so our life is in Him now. And we see this reflected throughout the passage that we're in the middle of right now and throughout the outline, in fact, that I gave you last week. We saw in verses 4-5 through last week that there is a purpose to our progression in Christ. Verses 9-10, through there's a purpose to our possession by Christ. Verse 11-12, through there is a purpose to our pilgrimage with Christ. In Christ, by Christ, with Christ. That's where our identity and purpose is found as a believer. It is found in Christ. Everything in our Christian lives is connected, ought to be connected to Him. Especially everything that we're going to be looking at throughout the rest of this letter concerning the experiences and expectations of the Christian life. It all comes back to these three verses. This is the pivot point of this entire letter. 
It all comes back to Christ. And Peter is going to prove that here in this morning's passage where in the very middle of his discussion about a believer's identity and purpose, Peter drops a, you could call it a parenthetical explanation here in verses 6-8. through In other words, Peter pauses on his overall argument about identity and purpose for a moment in order to reassert the centrality of Jesus Christ, the importance of Him, not only in a believer's life, but in an unbeliever's life also. Everyone's life. See, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but Jesus Christ is central to everyone's life, whether they want Him to be or not. Everyone's eternal destiny and everyone's purpose is defined by their relationship to Jesus. He is the unavoidable constant that all men are destined to confront. Jesus is unavoidable. Every human being must decide what they will do with Jesus Christ. Because what they decide to do with Jesus Christ will determine everything and define everything, both in this life and in the life hereafter. And that's what we're going to see today in verses 6 through 8. In verses 6 through the beginning of verse 7, we're going to examine what Peter says concerning the destiny of all those who submit to Jesus And then at the end of verse 7, on into verse 8, we're going to consider this morning the destiny of those who stumble over Him. Because those are the only two options. Those are the only two options. You're either submitting to Jesus Christ in obedient faith, or you're stumbling over Him in disobedient unbelief. And you will be defined forever by that choice. The choice that you make. This is the centrality of Christ. And so let's see that this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words for us today. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of God who awakens our eyes before the watches of the night so that we might meditate on his promises. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for how it shows us the living word. Our prayer is the prayer of the song that we just sang. Show us Christ. Show us His glory. Show us His worth. Show us His importance and His unavoidableness so that we might live the lives 
that we ought to live throughout the time of our exile here on earth. Father, I pray that this morning in advance, Christ might be the cornerstone of everyone here today through faith in Him. Spare, spare those under this teaching from stumbling over Him as the judgment stone. I pray that Your grace would be richly poured out by Your Spirit at this time. In Jesus' name, Amen. So in order to highlight for us the absolute centrality of Jesus Christ, Peter focuses first on the destiny of all those who submit to Christ. And that's, at the, that's in verse 6 and at the beginning of verse 7. Peter writes these words, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him shall not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Now first of all, we all need to understand that this section is a development of what we looked at last week. This is not existing by itself. Because Peter starts off by saying, for it stands in Scripture. In other words, Peter is saying, let me prove this to you. Prove what? Well, Peter has just said in verses 4-5 through that Jesus, as the Messiah, is a living stone, one rejected by men, yet in the sight of God chosen and precious. And because Jesus is a living stone, when we come to Christ in faith and are brought into alignment with Him, we as believers are being built up into a spiritual house of worship where we as holy priests get to offer up to God acceptable sacrifices through Jesus Christ. That is quite the claim. That Jesus is the promised one sent from God. That Jesus is the very foundation stone of God's kingdom. That Jesus is the one to whom all men must submit in order to draw near to God and be acceptable in His sight. In other words, Peter is claiming that Jesus, as the Messiah, is the most important person in this universe, and He is the most important person in your life whether you want to acknowledge it or not. He is the absolute center of God's plans, the person at the absolute center of every single person's life and destiny. That is quite the claim. And so Peter says, let me prove this to you. How? For it stands in Scripture. Here, This is going to be important for our understanding later on in this letter. Peter begins his defense on the centrality of Jesus Christ by going straight to the authority and eternality of God's Word. He gives, as 1 Peter 3.15 says here, a reason for the hope that is in Him. And that reason is found where? Not in logic, but in Scripture. He doesn't expound on a grand polemic. He expounds on a grand passage, believing that the power is in the Word. 
He gives a reason for the hope that is in him. That reason is found in the Word of God. Peter is saying, how do I know that this is what is true of Christ in the present? I know this is true because this is what God has said of Christ in the past. And nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. This is the grounding of Peter's hope. This is the reason for the hope that is in him. It stands present tense in Scripture. See, it's not just that God has spoken in His Word, it is that He is speaking right now. As Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, the Word of our God will stand forever. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will never pass away. Psalms 119, 89, forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. This is the grounding of Peter's hope in Christ. It is the truth of God's Word, which remains forever. So when, and I'm, this is off topic, but when someone asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, don't go frantically trying to pull out philosophy books to give them a reason. Go to God's Word. It is the authority. It is the authority. Do what Peter does. It stands in Scripture. Because the ultimate battle in this world is not over arguments. It's about authority. It's about authority. And the truth that God has spoken thousands of years ago is as eternally relevant today as the headlines that you will read this afternoon. As one of my favorite hymns puts it, the Bible stands like a rock undaunted midst the raging storms of time. Its pages glow with the truth eternal and they or burn with the truth eternal, and they glow with a light sublime. The Bible stands though the hills may tumble. It will firmly stand when the earth shall crumble. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation, for the Bible stands. This book is not evidence that God, merely evidence that God has spoken in the past. It is evidence that God is still speaking right now, constantly, unwaveringly, eternally. It stands present tense in Scripture. And because it stands in Scripture, Peter's going to prove the present centrality of Jesus Christ by presenting a series of Old Testament passages. And the first passage he refers to in Isaiah 28, verse 16, is a very famous Messianic text. In fact, it is the text that Paul quotes twice over in the book of Romans in connection to Jesus being the Christ, the promised saving sovereign of all, the Messiah. Well, Peter uses Isaiah 28.16 here by saying, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now notice, just as Peter, in verses 4-5, through described Jesus to be a living stone chosen and precious upon which we as believers are built, Isaiah wrote, Behold, I am laying in Zion, what? A stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, a cornerstone upon which the rest of the building is built. So Peter here is not teaching anything new in his letter of 1 Peter. He is teaching exactly what Jesus taught about himself 30 years earlier in Luke 20:17, and exactly what Isaiah the prophet taught about the Messiah nearly 700 years earlier. And Isaiah in his passage begins by saying, Behold! In other words, 
take a look at this. And the person speaking is God Himself. God is drawing our attention to something. He is calling on us to pay attention to a stone. This stone. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion, that is in Jerusalem, a stone. What type of stone? A cornerstone. Chosen and precious. See, back then there were many stones that were laid down in the construction of a building. But the most important stone was the cornerstone. Why? Well, because when you set down that stone in the corner, it set all of the angles for the rest of the building that would be built following. Not only horizontally, but vertically as well. As such, the cornerstone had to be perfect. If not, you'd have walls that are falling over and going off at strange angles and a roof that doesn't match. The cornerstone had to be perfect, absolutely perfect from every single angle in order that the rest of the house would stand square and perfect also. That is why a builder, before he ever placed it down a cornerstone, would carefully examine it first. Is it a perfect 90 degrees in length and width and in height? Right? Does it keep a straight line all the way through? Or does it get crooked halfway through? A builder would carefully examine all of those things. And once he found a stone with all of the right angles, the builder would carefully choose it and he would set it apart as the most important stone in his building project. The cornerstone was chosen and precious. And what Isaiah is saying here from verses 5 into verse 6, is that God's got a building project. It's called His kingdom. It's called the household of God. And God has carefully chosen a precious cornerstone for that building. A perfect, elect, set-apart cornerstone that perfectly sets all the angles and dimensions of that building. And that cornerstone is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. He is the perfect stone that sets all of the angles and determines all the dimensions of the household of God. He's the perfect stone. To put it another way, Jesus is the one whom all men must line themselves up with in order to be in the household of God. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. You must be in line with the cornerstone if you are going to be in the house of God. He is the cornerstone. What an image. What an image. You must fall in line with Jesus if you want to be in the kingdom of God because Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And if you do, if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and bring your life into submission to His saving sovereignty, Isaiah writes, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That was an astonishing verse when I was thinking about it this week. There are, I don't know about you, there are many things that I look back on in my life that bring me great shame. There is one thing I have never been ashamed of. And that is trusting in Jesus Christ. Relying and depending upon Him alone. Trusting in Jesus will never be any of the things that I will ever be ashamed of in my life. It stands in Scripture that whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Can I just encourage you, believer this morning, and I was especially thinking of young people when I was thinking of my own life. The Lord Jesus will never, ever, 
ever, ever let you down. So many other things as you go through this life will. Jesus never will. He will never disappoint us. He will never fail to fulfill all that He has promised to us. As the Lord says in Joel 2.27, My people shall never be put to shame. We can give Him our entire lives in absolute confidence to Him. As Isaiah 50 verse 7 says, It is the Lord God who helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not at all be put to shame. That is the confidence that you and I can have when we trust in the Lord and surrender our lives to Him. You do not have to fear the Lord's leading in your life. You don't have to fear the Lord's leading in your life. Oh, He who gave you His only Son has great and glorious plans for you. As Isaiah 54 verse 4 says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded. You will not be disgraced. Why? Verse 5, For the, your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth. He is called. There is no shame to those who put their trust in Him. You can follow Jesus. You can every single day take up your cross and follow Him. And at the end of the day, look back and say, that might have been hard. That might have been painful. That might have hurt. But it was the best decision I ever made. There is... You can follow Jesus and you can give your life completely to Him each and every day and that decision will be vindicated over and over and over again. There's no shame for those who daily trust in Jesus and fall in line with Him. In fact, there's honor. As Peter says in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. Now what is that honor? Well, we know it's not earthly honor. (laughs) Because we're going to find out throughout the rest of 1 Peter, uh, there's a lot of dishonor given to those who follow Jesus here on this earth. So he's not talking about earthly honor, and most immediately, the honor he's referring to is the honor Peter has just described in verses 4-5. through It is the honor of belonging to God's house and God's family, of being ordained into God's holy priesthood, of being able to draw near to God in Christ and offer up spiritual sacrifices and worship to God that God delights in. That is an honor that belongs to those who trust in Christ. It is the honor of beholding and recognizing that Jesus is good, that He is chosen, that He is precious. It is the honor of being able to live a life in the here and now, worshiping the God that we will worship for all of eternity. That honor is for those of us who believe. It's an honor that belongs to us. Just as Isaiah said, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That is an honor for those of us who believe in Jesus. And that honor eclipses any earthly dishonor that we might ever suffer here on earth. As Peter taught earlier in chapter 1, verse 7, there is praise and glory and honor awaiting us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes in fulfillment to all of His promises, there will be honor for us. Romans 2, verse 10 says that there is glory and honor and peace for everyone who through faith does good. There is glory and honor and immortality. And Jesus promises in Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly. 
and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. See, those who surrender their lives to Jesus Christ, who are brought into saving alignment with him through faith, by God's grace, they are destined for honor. There is an honor for those who believe. So that is the destiny of those who submit to Christ. I have to ask the question, have you done this? I'm not asking about do you line up with your parents' expectations. I'm not saying do you line up with your friends' expectations. Boy, I'm certainly not asking you to line up with this world's expectations. Have you been brought into line with Jesus Christ? Have you submitted your life to Jesus Christ by faith? Have you fallen in line and aligned yourself with Jesus, the chief cornerstone? Are you a part of His spiritual house, of His kingdom? Or are you right now outside of it? Because because after Peter shows us the centrality of Jesus by examining the destiny of those who submit to Him, He then shows us the centrality of Christ by examining the destiny of those who stumble over Him. And that's at the end part of verse 7 into verse 8. That's the only other option there is, by the way. You cannot be neutral on the most important person in this universe. After Peter says, the honor is for those who believe, he then says this, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Here Peter quotes another Old Testament passage. It's Psalms 118, verse 22, where the Messiah is pictured once again as a stone, only this time he is a stone that the builders rejected. So the image is that of the world, and most particularly the Jews, carefully examining the Messiah. And ultimately determining that he was not the king that they wanted, and so they rejected him. They threw him away like worthless garbage. Only for that rejected Messiah to then become the very cornerstone of God's work here on this earth. His very rejection was the divine tool by which he was set in place as the chief cornerstone. And Peter's very explicit about this, by the way, in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, where Peter says there to the Jewish leaders that killed uh, the Messiah, he says this, This Jesus whom you crucified is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and he has become the cornerstone. So this rejection is what happened to Jesus. And by the way, it is what still happens to him. The unbelieving world, I mean, you don't have... Look at every news cycle and every election. (laughs) The unbelieving world takes hold of Jesus. And with initial interest, they look at him and they begin to examine him carefully. Oh, this guy's really interesting, right? But it doesn't take long for them to realize, oh wait, this isn't the Messiah I want. I want a political leader. I want a social reformer. I want an earthly savior. Not a spiritual one. And so they look at the Messiah and they, in essence, say this. He's not the cornerstone. I am. 
And Jesus doesn't fit into what I'm building. Jesus doesn't fit into what I want out of my life. Jesus doesn't fall in line with me. And so what do they do? They throw him aside as worthless. They reject him. And what they don't realize is that the very stone that they're rejecting, God has made the chief cornerstone. And not only that, verse 8, this rejected Messiah has not only become a cornerstone, he has also become, as he says here, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Again, this is quoted from the Old Testament from Isaiah 8, verses 14 through 15, where the Messiah is once again pictured as a stone. Only this time, instead of a living stone or a cornerstone, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You say, well, what does that refer to? It refers to judgment. That's how Jesus himself interpreted it over in Luke 20, verse 18, when he says this, everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is the stone over which people in their unbelief stumble and fall to eternal destruction. And that's the irony when you look at Jesus. Jesus is the living stone that brings eternal life to some And he is also the deadly stone that brings eternal death to others. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16, this message of Christ is to one a fragrance of life to life, to others a fragrance of death to death. And even Simeon, at Jesus' birth in Luke 2, verses 34 through 35, says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. This is the centrality of Jesus Christ. He is both the cornerstone and He is the judgment stone. He is either the cornerstone upon which you will rise to eternal life or Jesus is the judgment stone over which you will stumble to eternal destruction. You say, well, how? How is that possible? How can a Messiah who is a living stone of eternal life also be a deadly stone of eternal death? How is that possible? End of verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Why do people stumble and fall over Christ to their eternal destruction? It is because they disobey the word. What is that word? Verse 25 of chapter 1, it is the gospel message. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. They will not believe in him whom God has sent. And if they will not obey, if they will not believe, if they will not submit their lives to Christ's saving sovereignty, they are destined to destruction. For consider, if you reject life itself, what is left but death? If you reject forgiveness and salvation for your sins, what is left but judgment? There is no third option. You are either in the household of God or you are outside the household of God. You are either one with the author of life or you are cut off from life itself. You are either one with the Savior or you are under condemnation. This is the centrality of Jesus. He is not someone that you can just come to church and hear a message about from me and decide nothing. I don't want to do anything to do about that. You have to make a decision. You are making a decision. Right now. 
of whether you are submitting to Jesus Christ or whether you are rejecting Him. You are either following after Him or you are following after yourself, blind leading the blind into eternal destruction. There's no other option. This is why we preach the Gospel. Because apart from Christ, no man will live. You might have some very moral family members. But if they don't know Christ, they're condemned in their sins. They must submit to Jesus. You must share the gospel with them. They must believe. Peter's powerfully laying out this simple and sobering truth. You cannot disobey the gospel. You cannot reject Jesus Christ and get away with it. There is a consequence. Just as there would be a consequence to rejecting the most important law of this universe called gravity, throw yourself off a cliff someday and see if you can get away with it. There is a consequence, a moral consequence, to rejecting and ignoring the most important person in this universe, Jesus Christ. There is a consequence to not bringing your life into alignment with the chief cornerstone. Namely, you are left outside of his house, outside of his kingdom, outside of his saving grace and eternal life if you will not repent forever. If you will not surrender to Jesus Christ for eternal life, you will stumble over Jesus Christ into eternal destruction. As John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the centrality of Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the judgment stone. He is the defining center of everyone's life for good or for ill. He is the one to whom all souls will have to give an account. What did you do with Jesus? Jesus will either be the cornerstone upon which you will rise to eternal life or he will be the judgment stone over which you will fall to eternal destruction. As one person put it, Christ is the great unavoidable. And it's true. You will come to the rock. The question is, will you come to him as an elect precious cornerstone or will you come to him as a stumbling stone and a crushing rock of offense? The choice is yours. Therefore, as 2 Corinthians 5.11 and following says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men be reconciled to God. Entrust your life and your eternal destiny to Jesus who is the chief cornerstone. I urge you today, I don't know your hearts, but God does. Align your life to Jesus Believe in Him and receive the honor that is for those who believe. The honor of eternal life, of acceptance before God, and of inclusion into His family, His kingdom, and His service. Do it right now where you sit in your heart to God. Entrust yourself to the perfect authority of the chief cornerstone.
Submit to Him as your Savior and Lord and determine that this morning that nothing matters more than obtaining eternal life and everlasting forgiveness beneath His sovereign hand. Call out to Him, I urge you in faith, and ask Him to forgive you of your sins and to bring you into His kingdom and into the household of faith. So really, I do, as I was thinking about this week, I do this morning exactly what Moses did to the people of Israel. In Christ Jesus, I put before you both life and death, blessings and curses. Will you stumble over Jesus or will you submit to him in faith? The destinies of all men and your destiny falls along this line. What will you do with Jesus? Did you rise on him in faith or did you fall over him in unbelief? And then another entire sermon that I won't even get to. Do the angles of your life point back to Him? Will He be your cornerstone or your judgment stone? I, I appeal to you. Choose Christ and live. And this is the centrality of Jesus Christ. Both in salvation and in life for both the believer and for all men. And this is the Word of God from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6-8, through 8, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedient, obedience and the fervent care of one another until the cornerstone that God has laid down in Zion returns. To that end, let's pray, and then we'll welcome some new members to our church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. And out of my heart, and I know for many others here today, I just praise you for your grace. Here we are approaching Thanksgiving. What greater thanks could anyone give than to say that we are in your house? And that by your grace, We have been brought into alignment with Christ Jesus through faith in Him. Father, when I consider the centrality of Christ, I, I rejoice over those who have been saved. We thank You that He is the Savior. We thank you that he is the cornerstone. We thank you that there is a name given under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. We thank you that there is a name for sinners like us. And we give you thanks for Jesus. But Father, I I, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that has just been putting on a show, that has not submitted their life and their heart to Jesus Christ in faith, that they would this morning, where they're seated, repent of their sins and cry out for for forgiveness and for new life in Christ. Help us, Father, to take this Jesus who is above all and help us to proclaim Him to everyone we know for He will either be the cornerstone upon which they rise or the judgment stone 
over which they stumble. Father, help us to communicate the gospel to them that by your grace they might believe and be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.